0: Well, good morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, and while you're turning there, just to clarify, to sign up, we we would like you to register for the Foundations class if you plan to come, that helps us plan. You can go to EmmausRoadSF.com slash Foundations and uh, access it straight from there. While you're turning to 1 Timothy 1. At the end of every calendar year, Time magazine, they put out their person of the year issue. And in the person of the year issue, they feature a person or a group of people or a thing that they describe as having for better or for worse, having done the most to influence the events of the year. So the 2019 person of the year In case you missed it, was Greta Thunberg, that 17-year-old climate activist from Sweden. Past winners include, I mean, usually you look back, any time a president is elected, person of the year. Uh, Foreign prime ministers, popes, billionaire business founders. I mean, you're talking movers and shakers, people who make things happen in the world for better or worse. That's just an incredibly ambitious undertaking, I think, to name the person of the year, and to define it the way Time Magazine does. The person who has done the most, not a lot, the most, more than anyone or anything else, to influence the events, not some events, all the events of the past year. That's incredible. Just think about that for a moment. Who are the people? Who are the people most influencing the world and shaping history right now? Where are the most consequential decisions, the ones with the most gravity, the most weight? Where are those decisions being made, and who are the people making them right now? Who are the power players? Who are the the influencers? What, What would you say if you were on that committee? Where would you start to look? I mean, our minds might go to movie stars and movie Producers in Hollywood or the bankers and investors on Wall Street or the politicians in Washington. Powerful CEOs and heads of state and those who gather in Davos, Switzerland for the World Economic Forum. In order to make such a judgment, you first have to have in mind some idea of what really matters in the world. What's making a difference? What kind of difference is being made? According to Scripture... Which is what we're most concerned with. The most important, the most significant, the most history shaping endeavor on earth, not just in a year or a few years, but in the scope of human history, is not a Fortune 500 company, it's not a president, it's not a pope, it's not a movie studio, it's the local church. The local church. What's happening in local churches is the most important endeavor happening on the face of the planet. And I don't say that lightly, and I don't mean any exaggeration by that at all. And I want to, this morning, convince you of that so that you will trust God and treasure what He is doing in the world through the church and, as a result, commit your life to a local church. Not even necessarily this one, just a local church for the glory of God and the good of this world. So today, we're launching a sermon series through Paul's two letters to Timothy, and we're calling it The Economy of God. And that may come as a surprise to you, since a few weeks ago we announced on social media we were going to be going through Timothy, and we were calling the series The Good Fight, which sounds rather different than The Economy of God. It was at the last minute, preparing for this message, by last minute, I mean like last week when we thought we were going to be meeting last Sunday, uh, that I just became convinced the economy of God better captures the big idea of First and Second Timothy and keeps our attention on the very reasons that we believe God would have us preach these two letters at this particular time in our social setting, in our, the life of our church. We believe God has led us to these letters, and I think the economy of God sums up why but maybe not necessarily right off the bat. Because when you hear the economy of God, all kinds of things probably come to mind. That word economy has money connotations, goods and production and GDP and employment rates and all of that. So I want to give our attention. Let's give our attention to First Timothy 1, verses 1 and 2. And I'll explain to you what I mean by the economy of God and what it has to do with the local church being the most important entity on earth. And I want to invite you, um, don't, you don't have to do it yet, but just in just a minute, to stand as we read God's word. Uh, I'd love to do that throughout this sermon series as a way of reminding ourselves that we receive God's word. We read it like no other book. It's with reverence and awe and humility and honor that that we receive God's words directly to us, authoritative, clear, sufficient words. And I think standing is one way to do that. If you're able, if not, don't worry about it. If you're able, would you stand and join me in reading First Timothy chapter one, verses one and two? This is God's word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace. Mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking to us. You are not silent. You are not distant. You are near and your word is near and your promise is near. And everyone who believes, everyone who hears your word and believes it, will be saved, and everyone who calls on your name will be saved. We thank you, God our Savior, for what you have done and what you are doing and what you promise to do in the world through your church and the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. So change us as you speak to us through this word for your glory and our good. Amen. You may be seated. So like the other 13 books in the New Testament that Paul wrote, First and 2 Timothy are letters. All of Paul's books in the New Testament are letters. And that literary form informs the way that we read this. We come to it realizing we are reading somebody else's mail. This is a written correspondence between two people. Paul, in place of being physically present to give instructions, wrote. He wrote down his thoughts to communicate specific instructions and directions to a specific recipient, to communicate those ideas across distance. And so that shapes how we read these two letters. But as we come to First and 2 Timothy, we realize Paul's intent is never merely informational. He's writing to communicate information, but it's not only informational Paul always begins his letters with a greeting and in all of his letters his standard greeting every time follows very closely this pattern he says something like grace to you and peace from God our father and the lord Jesus Christ in first and second timothy he adds something so it stands out to us very similar but he says grace mercy And peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He does that in both of these letters. And it would be easy to skip over these really quickly. Like these are just formalities. It's just polite to start your communication with some kind of greeting, some nicety. But Paul is cluing us into what he's doing in these letters. He really is writing to convey grace and mercy and peace. From God. Think about what it means to receive grace and mercy and peace from God. And that's how Paul begins because everything else that he writes means to express that. I mean, he tells Christians in Ephesians chapter 4 that all of our speech should give grace to those who hear. So if the everyday speech of believers, if your everyday speech has the capacity to give grace to the people who hear you, everyday conversation. How much more would these spirit-inspired words communicated by an apostle of Jesus Christ communicate grace as the power of God active in our lives, mercy and peace from God to us? So whenever you open scripture, you should open it with this expectation, this eager anticipation. God's going to give you grace. God's going to give you mercy and peace here from himself in his words. So that affects how we read these letters. First and 2 Timothy, along with the, the book we call Titus, they make up a trio of letters that we refer to as the pastoral epistles. Most of Paul's letters, in fact all of his other letters, are addressed to entire churches, that is other than Philemon. So he starts them by saying, to the saints, or to all the saints in a particular place, or to the church of God in Corinth, or to the church of God in Thessalonica, or Philippi. He's addressing a whole congregation. But the pastoral epistles are addressed to individuals, Timothy and Titus. And we call them pastoral epistles because they were written to pastors, largely about pastoral ministry. Timothy was pastoring a church in Ephesus. We know that from verse 3. Titus was pastoring a church in Crete, and Paul wrote to these young pastors to tell them about pastoral ministry and how to structure the church, the nature of what God had called them to in the church. But I think when we call them in the pastoral epistles, people can get the wrong idea that they're only for pastors. And they're not. They're for the church. In fact, it's likely that Paul meant for this letter, at least parts of it, to be read publicly. Even though it was right to Timothy, it was one of those conversations where Paul meant to be overheard. He meant for the church to overhear his particular instructions to Timothy so that others would know this is what's going on in the church. And in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, verses 14 and 15, we have this crystal clear purpose statement from Paul which is so helpful when an author tells us exactly why he's writing what he's writing because all the other pieces fit in under that. Here's the purpose statement. Here's the reason Paul wrote this letter to this young pastor, Timothy, in Ephesus. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So there it is. This letter explains how you should behave in God's house. That's not just for pastors. That's for anyone who's in God's house. Now, when you think of house rules... Your mind may go initially to common things that would be disallowed inside a house, like no shoes in the house, no running in the house, inside voices only. Maybe you can hear your mom's voice, or your, I hear my grandmother's voice. We used to jump down. There was this awesome opening between their dining room and the living room, and there was a couch there, and we would jump through it. And I could just hear her, "Don't jump, kids!" And as soon as she wasn't looking, we jump. House rules may turn our mind to things not to do in someone's house, but that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about rules to follow when you go over to God's house so as to not upset God. He's talking about something way bigger, way more glorious than that. He's actually talking about belonging to a household and knowing your position and your place and your role in that household. And that's because there's a difference between a house and a household. The Greek word for household is oikos, like the yogurt. That word can refer to a physical structure, the dwelling place, the house, but it can also refer to the, the household. So a household also shelters and protects, just like the physical building shelters and protects. But the household does way more than the building does because the household itself is way more. It's richer, it's deeper, it's more vibrant because the household is made up of people, not just sticks and bricks like the building. The household is made up of the people in community. And I think that can be hard for us to see today because the modern household is primarily viewed in terms of consumption in our society. Home is where you go to eat, watch TV, go to bed. That's what you do at home, and everything else in your life happens outside of the home. So all of the learning, all of the work, all of the producing, all of the serving, all of the socializing, that, that happens outside of the home. But in the ancient world, the oikos, the household, was also the center of production and industry, which means ancient households often included way more people than just the immediate nuclear family. You could have extended family members as well, depending on the size of the operation, the amount of land and productive property owned. You might have hired workers who are also part of the household, maybe even slaves. I mean, just to give you some idea of how far removed our concept of the household is from the ancient idea of household, just, just listen to how Genesis 14.14 14 describes, talks about Abraham in passing. When Abram heard that his kinsman, that is Lot, had been taken captive... Abram led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. I mean, do any of you have trained men born in your house, let alone 318 of them? That's like a standing army, born in his house. That's a different idea of a household than we're used to. Those are just the trained men. That's not even talking about, I mean, that's like the fighting military side of things, not even talking about all of the other shepherds and workers and productive things going on in his household. Now, Abraham was wealthy. He's an exception. Not everybody was a household owner like that, but it gives you some idea, right? So here's the first key idea at the heart of 1 Timothy. The church is the household of God. Not just the building inside of which God lives. It's the household of God made up of people who are members of that Household And 1 Timothy is all about the way that members of God's household live and order their lives and relate to each other in God's church, which is in God's world. So this is a big deal. That implies that there actually is some order, that there's some arrangement, some plan by which God means for the members of his household to order their lives. That's why Paul writes to Timothy to tell him, here's how one ought to behave in the household of God. There are ways this should be done and ways that this should not be done because it's not our house, it's God's house, and we're members of his household. And Paul gets right into that in 1 Timothy 1 verses 3 and 4 when he tells Timothy this, Remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So Paul charges Timothy right off the bat, there are false teachers in Ephesus inside the church in Ephesus promoting false teachings And those heretical ideas are filling the church with these wild and worthless speculations that, we're going to see this in the coming weeks, those things are actually destroying people's lives and shipwrecking their faith. And instead of that, teachers in the church ought to be promoting the stewardship from God or what I would like to suggest we could call the economy of God. This is where we get the phrase, the economy of God, from 1 Timothy 1, verse 4. That phrase, translated in the ESV, the stewardship from God, translates a Greek phrase, oikonomia theou, which is notoriously difficult to translate. The ESV translates oikonomia here as stewardship. It appears nine times in in the rest of the New Testament. Sometimes the ESV translates it stewardship or management or plan kind of gives you a sense of the range of meaning. Stewardship, management, plan. The NIV translates it sometimes administration or here God's work. It's tough to find a word that captures the whole range of meaning. But let me break it down. Oikonomia is made up of two words. Oikos, which you're familiar with now. And namos, which means law or rule. So literally, oikos, house, namos, rule, house, rule. Rule, house management, the rule of the house. That's what oikonomia is. It's actually where we get our word economy. Oikonomia, economy. And I agree with Dr. Nathan Hitchcock, a former professor at Sioux Falls Seminary, who suggests the best solution in this case might just be to use a transliteration of the word. Economy, just use that word. We do that with other words. For example, we saw in John's Gospel, uh, Jesus teaches the Holy Spirit. He refers to him in Greek as parakletos, and that gets translated sometimes comforter, sometimes advocate, sometimes helper, but none of those quite nails it, so you often hear theologians just refer to the Holy Spirit as the paraclete. Have you heard that before? Or we use the word shalom, or the word amen, because there's just not another word that encapsulates all of it. So this is where we get the phrase, what I'm calling the economy of God, but what is it? I admit, one weakness of the word is that it might have those strong connotations with money and goods and services. But think of the economy of God this way. The economy of God is God's purpose. It's God's plan. It's God's ordering and arrangement of all things. The economy of God is the way that God orders all things. One commentator translates this phrase, oikonomia theu, as God's way of ordering things. Or listen to this commentator who says, The term envisions a divinely organized pattern of life. God's ordering of reality. As Paul applies it to Christian existence, the term is expansive, encompassing the whole social and political and religious world in much the same way that the emperor would take to himself the role of the father or householder and regard the entire empire and all its inhabitants as his household. Understood this way, the whole of life, all of life is subject to the divine will, or at least it's meant to be. The implications for a Christian understanding of the church in the world are enormous. You start to get a glimpse of why. If God has a plan for his household, and that is expansive. It's not just covering a sliver of your life, like here's the church side of my life over here, this thing I do on Sundays, but I am now a member of the household of God, and all of my life, therefore, is wrapped up into that, and God has a plan in oikonomia, a structure for his household. Nothing is off limits. Everything in my life is caught up into the household of God, and God is the Father. And so we care about what Paul has to say when he says, here's how one ought to behave in the household of God. The economy of God is God's way of ordering reality. Listen for the economy of God in Ephesians chapter 1, written to the same church where Timothy pastored for a time in Ephesus. Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, Paul writes, in him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So that's redemption in Jesus. And he goes on, making known to us the mystery of his will. God's making his will known on earth according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan. The Greek word is oikonomia. He set forth in Christ an economy, a plan, a purpose, a way of ordering things. In Jesus, he set it forth in the world for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So what does the economy of God touch? Everything. Just on earth? No. In all of history, And in heaven and earth, it touches everything. So twice in 1 Timothy, Paul launches into these worshipful proclamations, these doxologies. He does it early on in chapter 1, uh, verse 17. He does it in chapter 6, towards the end of the letter. And he just, he declares God. Both times he repeats this theology. God, he calls the king of the ages, He calls him the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. That is a total claim meant to offend, provoke, challenge anyone else who claims any authority in heaven or on earth. He is king over everything. The emperor, the prime minister, the president, the governor, the CEO, moms and dads, everything. He is king Of the ages, the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. And Paul says he's worthy of honor and glory and eternal dominion. And he's a father. And as a father, he has a household. And he's not negligent. He doesn't just let his household do whatever everybody feels like doing so they can discover themselves and express themselves their own way. He's a loving father who loves every member of his household. And so he has a plan for his household. So nothing is outside of God's economy. From this first act of creation, first word, let there be light, God has been working out a plan, a purpose. You read, Chapter 1 of Genesis, God creates the world and it's clear he seems to be working on purpose. He has an end in mind. There's something he's working toward. And Scripture unfolds not with God, not in fits and starts like God saying, let's try that and that didn't really work and we'll try it this way and well that didn't go so well. No, every act of redemption is clearly God working progressively toward one end to display the glory of his grace for the joy of his people. That's what God is doing to unite every square inch of the cosmos heaven and earth in Christ and the economy of God is redemptive from the opening verse of 1 Timothy Paul speaks of God as our savior and he does that repeatedly throughout these letters in 1 Timothy it stands out to theologians and scholars and commentators Paul frequently refers to God the Father as Savior. And that's strange, because in the rest of the New Testament, usually we call Jesus the Son the Savior. But in 1 Timothy, it's God the Father who Paul keeps calling the Savior. Not that Jesus isn't the Savior, he says that too, but in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, he says, God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And in 2 Timothy 1.10, our Savior Christ Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The economy of God is redemptive. God saves, God redeems, God restores, God reconciles sinners to himself. But when we say that the economy of God is redemptive, I don't want you to narrow that too much to think of, oh, okay, it's just the... the, God's plan of salvation, like maybe you've heard of um, in evangelism, the ABCs of salvation. Admit, believe, confess. Well, that's certainly part of it. Nobody becomes a Christian without believing in Jesus, but the economy of God is not narrowed down to the moment that you first believe in Jesus and confess Him. The economy of God is expansive. God is setting right in Christ everything that's wrong in the world. There's this new creation reordering of all reality happening in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ because of his life, his death, his resurrection, his rule, and reign. So how does God do that? How is God making all things new? That brings us to the second key truth First 1 Timothy. The economy of God is manifested in the world through local churches. Listen again for the economy of God, this time from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, the oikonomia of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Did you catch that? So it's through the preaching of the gospel that God is making his economy known to the entire world. Wherever Christ is preached, the economy of God is moving forward. Because in Adam, all sin. And in our sin, the world is plunged into darkness and death and destruction and chaos. But in Christ, we are redeemed and brought to life and made new. So it's in the preaching of the gospel that God's economy is being made known in the world. In Christ that God is redeeming humanity. In Christ that God will one day renew the heavens and the earth. But there is more. Did you catch this? It's In and through the church that the wisdom and beauty of life in God's economy is displayed. That is just mind-blowing to me. That Paul would say, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known. And he doesn't just say, on earth. He says, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So, the economy of God is cosmic. And the church is the display. The witness. The evidence of the economy of God, even to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Listen to Philip Towner again. He says, the metaphor of the household of God, this metaphor, the economy of God, makes the people of God the the microcosm or paradigm of a world obedient to God's ordering. So there's a world disobedient to God, and how are people to see what it looks like when there is a world obedient to God? You look at the church, the household of God, it's a picture, it's a witness to the world. This is what it looks like when people live God's way. And so its mission is to extend this reality beyond its own walls so that God's way of ordering life can be known and obeyed by more and more of the unbelieving world. So it's not just this this is all it is and all it will ever be. It's an expanding household as more and more people are brought into it. And that's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15, the church is a household of God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. The church exists to hold up the truth of God, to hold out the truth of the gospel in the world. And that's why Paul found it urgent to write to Timothy because of false teachers who were promoting heretical ideas and messing up the church. Paul wrote to Timothy to say, This is how you ought to behave in the household of God. The gospel is at stake. The economy of God shaped how Paul understood his own ministry. He identifies himself at the beginning of both letters to Timothy as an apostle of Christ Jesus. Specifically, he says, by command of God our Savior, in Christ Jesus our hope. And in 2 Timothy 1.1, he says that it's by the will of God that he is an apostle. So it has nothing to do with Paul's ambition or his plan for his life, his dreams. He has a command from God. God's will is what made him an apostle. Remember how big Abraham's household was? In ancient households, you can imagine an operation like that would require some help to run it. And so operations in those households, which could be pretty extensive, the household ruler, owner, the head of the house, would often appoint in oikonomos, a steward, a manager. And this is not just like the head cook. This is senior-level management, somebody responsible for hiring and firing workers, for wages and for... Uh, production and sales and running the entire operation, and that's the word Paul uses to describe himself over and over again in the New Testament. He calls himself a steward, the manager, the household manager. First Corinthians four one, Paul writes, "This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards." Oikonomoi, we are household managers. It's God's house. We were appointed in His house, stewards of the mysteries of. God. He talks that way in 1 Corinthians 9.17 and Colossians 1.25, and he tells Timothy again and again, we've been entrusted with something, Timothy. We've been entrusted with the gospel. So it's fitting that when we get to 1 Timothy 3, we're going to hear Paul teach that one of the qualifications of a pastor is that he must manage his own household well, and the reason Paul gives is because if he doesn't know how to run his own household, how will he care for God's church? There's a correlation here, a meaningful correlation between our own households and the household of God. And this conviction informs in the way Paul relates to Timothy, his recipient. Timothy, he shows up in 10 out of Paul's 13 letters. He's listed as the co-author with Paul of six of those letters in the New Testament. That's a big deal. He's mentioned in two of them, and then he's the recipient of two. So he's on both ends. And in the content, Timothy shows up again and again. And we know from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters that Timothy was actively involved in gospel ministry with Paul. All over the Roman Empire, he was serving in churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus and more. And in, as partners in gospel ministry, Paul related to Timothy as a father with a son. We saw this in the introduction, verse 2. He calls Timothy, my true child in the faith he opens 2 Timothy that way as well and calls him my beloved child. I mean this is certainly an expression of warm affection but it also conveys this idea of a father training up his son to inherit, to take over, to continue on the work. He tells the church in Philippi in Philippians 2:22, you know Timothy's proven worth how As a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. How does a son work with a father? As an apprentice. When the the son of the owner shows up and starts working, and is actually put to work, not just spoiled, but put to work, everybody else has the idea, this guy's probably going to be running things someday. Timothy worked with Paul as a son with a father. And so Paul writes to Timothy. To tell him how to structure the church, how to carry out pastoral ministry, because what's at stake is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 6, verse 20, and then again in 2 Timothy, both letters, he repeats this line O Timothy, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. It's not our gospel, it's his gospel, it's the gospel of our Savior Jesus Christ. Guard it, Timothy. Do you get the picture? The all-encompassing economy of God is displayed for and delivered to the world by God's household as members of that household protect and proclaim the message that God saves sinners through the grace of God in Christ. That's how God's economy goes forth. And that's why I don't think it's any overstatement at all to say that the people with the greatest impact on the world, the cosmos, heaven and earth, are the members of God's household. The economy of God, the way God orders all things, is taking shape in the world through local churches that preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how God is changing things, renewing things. That's not to say that other spheres of life don't matter. In fact, what we'll see in First Timothy is that Every sphere of life does matter and that it's the unique role of the church to hold out the gospel to every other sphere of society. So Paul addresses politics and government officials in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He talks about the family a lot. He cares about the way that you care for elderly parents. That's a big deal. It matters to the church how you care for aging parents. But it's the church that holds out the gospel to the emperor To governors, to business owners, to parents, to people who are functioning in every other sphere of life. It's the church that holds out the gospel, and it's the gospel that changes people. And when people are changed, all of society is changed. That's how God's economy works. Just listen. Let me me give you a, a sense of how central the church is to all of history. Both Old and New Testaments repeat the same prophecy. This is... A big deal because the same prophecy gets repeated in almost word for word language in Isaiah and Revelation. The prophecy is that those who seem to be the greatest on earth, the most influential, the people who actually have a chance at winning Time Magazine's Person of the Year, those people will, in God's time, come into the church with all of their honor and all of their wealth and all of their glory and bend their knees to Jesus. Isaiah 60 verse 3 says, the nations. It's talking about the new Jerusalem. And the new Jerusalem is the church. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Like person of the year winners are going to come to the church. Because only the church holds out God's gospel, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Revelation 21 says it this way, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, the new Jerusalem, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So it's not that all the other spheres of life don't matter, it's that it's the church that holds out the gospel and the gospel changes people and how they live their lives in all those other spheres because the economy of God touches it all. And so we know from these prophecies that nothing is going to shape human history more than the church of Jesus Christ holding out that gospel to the world. Princes and paupers alike are now commanded by God, the book of Acts says. He now commands everyone everywhere to confess Jesus is Lord. And People believe that. They're joined to the household of God, which is the community in which and through which God is making himself known on earth so I want to close by giving you a few things we're praying for in this series. We just recognize that where we're at culturally right now, everywhere you look, I don't know if you hear this stuff, but I hear people using the word crisis everywhere. Like there's a constitutional crisis right now. A lot of people are saying there is an evangelical crisis right now. Everybody, nobody can quite explain what it is, but everybody just knows there's some thing going on in the evangelical church, and it's a crisis. There's a crisis everywhere. If, if there's ever a time that we need some address from God to us about how one ought to behave in the household of God, this just seems like an appropriate time. And So we, we want God to speak to us from these letters to Timothy as God addresses the church. So these are things we're praying for. I want to invite you to pray for with us that we would get out of this series. Would you pray that we would come away treasuring our blood-bought ecclesiology? Blood-bought ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. What the church is, what it does, how it's structured, who runs it, who's responsible for what. And Paul has a lot to say about that. But we live in a time, a culture, where people just kind of have the idea, church is whatever you want it to be. It's what, what matters the most is your own personal preferences, your tastes and your opinions and how do you want the music to be and all of that. And we, we want to know, what does God say to the church? And we call it blood-bought ecclesiology because the last time Paul was in person with the elders in Ephesus, the church that he's addressing in First Timothy, he said these words. I don't have them on the screen, but this is Acts 20, verse 28. He said to those elders in Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. So we know that the church means a lot to God. How do you put any value on how much the church matters to God? He bought it with his blood. So if he values the church like that, we value the church like that, and we value the way God seeks to structure his church for his glory and for his witness in the world. So we want to learn from what he has to say in First and Second Timothy. Pray that you and we would all grow in humble orthodoxy. Humble orthodoxy. Orthodoxy means right doctrine. Orthodontics, that's straight teeth. Orthodoxy is straight teaching. Straight doctrine. One of Paul's big concerns in both these letters is false teachers, heterodoxy, heresy. And he brings it up again and again, and he has a lot to tell Timothy about how to deal with false teachers. And what you come away seeing is doctrine matters. Theology matters. There is content. There is real content to know and agree with and understand and believe it really matters. The gospel of Jesus Christ is compromised when that, those truths are abandoned. And so the content of the gospel matters. But at the same time that Paul is telling Timothy, confront these people, rebuke them, tell them to stop, he's also telling Timothy things like the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, he must be able to correct his opponents with gentleness. The aim of our charges. Love. We're hoping, we're praying that God would perhaps grant them repentance that would lead them to a knowledge of the truth so that they would come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So some people like doctrine and theology because they like being right because it puffs up their heads. Paul cares about the truth because the aim of it all is that people would be saved, that they would turn in repentance that they would come to love God and love people. And that creates humble orthodoxy, which is way different than arrogant theological debates and quarrels, which Paul has some strong warnings against in these letters. And so we want to grow in humble orthodoxy. And, man, do we need it today. Pray that we would mature in everyday godliness as well. The gospel is not just content to believe it it actually changes things in us. It changes how we live. How we behave in the household of God matters. Paul calls it godliness over and over again. It's how you live. It's what comes out your hands. What you believe comes out your fingertips in your everyday life. And we know it comes out in everyday life because the things that he addresses and applies the gospel to are the kinds of things that I think today would shock a lot of American Christians. They would think the church has no authority over that, That God doesn't care about that. In First Timothy, Paul addresses hairstyles and clothing and care for elderly parents, like I said. He addresses slaves. He talks about how to pray for government officials. He talks about sexuality. He talks about your speech and your conduct. He talks about marriage and childbearing and parenting and widowhood. He talks about food, and it really, really matters. Like, he's, he... <laughs> people are wrecking their faith because they don't understand a a theology of food and diet. And that just sounds like he could be writing today. Everywhere I look, people are promoting these crazy diets because they don't know how God thinks about food. He talks about food in 1 Timothy. It's everyday godliness. Nothing is off limits because all of our lives are wrapped up now into the household of God and the church displays the glory of God in the world. So pray that we would grow in everyday godliness as we come to understand the gospel more deeply. And finally, pray that we would continue in unswerving faithfulness. The the, the range of words Paul has in these letters for people who have walked away from Jesus is amazing to me. He says people have swerved, departed from, wandered from, shipwrecked, abandoned their faith. Paul cares about that because instead of that he repeatedly calls Timothy to wage the good warfare which is military language. He calls Timothy to fight the good fight which is athletic competition language. He urges Timothy to train himself for godliness which is like vigorous athletic training tenacious kind of language because Paul knows holding fast to Christ matters for the household of God. And so We long for every member of God's household to hold unswervingly to the gospel. So that's where we're going. That's where we invite you to pray with us. And if you have not committed your life to a local church, again, it doesn't have to be this one, a local church. This is what God's doing in the world. I can't think of anything more exciting, any bigger privilege than to be part of God's plan God's purposes unfolding in human history through the church holding out the gospel to the world in community with these other members of God's household nothing 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 at all benefits the world more than local churches that preserve the purity of the gospel humble orthodoxy and grow in everyday godliness and hold unswervingly to Jesus so let's pray O God, our Savior and our Father, Jesus, our hope and our Lord, Holy Spirit, come. Father, Son, and Spirit, make yourself known to us and through us and display the glory of your grace in our lives as exhibits of your patience and your mercy, as testimonies of your power, witness of your sovereign rule over all things. May our lives, may our speech, may our conduct, may our homes, may our relationships, may all of our lives bear witness to the glory of Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through his gospel. Do that, O oh God, for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of this city that we love, full of people who are still outside of your kingdom, outside of your salvation, but people that you mean to save, that you will save as they hear the gospel. Oh God, do this for their sake as well, in Jesus' name, amen.